Hello, Providence Church family. Greetings to you on this last Sunday in June, and we sure miss being together, but um, what an opportunity this has been in another way, just to see uh, how knowing the Lord Jesus helps us navigate uncertain times, and we'll continue on this model of meeting for at least the next couple of weeks, where we'll meet uh, outdoors at 9 and 11 a.m. on Sundays with a registration for distance, while also continuing to stream a service with the same content uh, for those who've decided to, to stay home. And I do believe that, actually, that um, while this has been a frustrating time for many, that it's a great opportunity, if you're a Christ follower, uh, for us to show the serenity that we have uh, when we're in him and can rest in him. And may we stay on mission to love him, to delight in his grace, and to proclaim him. So may we continue to do that. May we stay together as one church family and trusting in the Lord to, to work his ways in and through this. Thank you for members uh, for voting uh, those two weeks in, uh, earlier this month. I am pleased that all six of the matters before you on the ballot have passed uh, overwhelmingly. Thank you so much uh, for your participation in that. As we've, we're quite fond of saying here, we have a high bar of membership, means we, we want our members to be involved. We want them to serve. We want them to use uh, their spiritual gifts. And we, as a, a church family, make decisions so that we can go forward. And we're very pleased, again, that all six of those matters have passed and are excited for uh, what this next year holds. Uh, we've added one uh, further item to our website, and that is what we're now calling a weekly reflection. As many of you know, we had a daily devotional when we weren't able to meet on Sundays, and now we transition that into a weekly reflection. It's probably going to be about a six or a seven-minute um, look at Scripture to give us something to think about during the week, as we want to be a thinking church. And um, again, that's available on the homepage of the website, and hope that's an encouragement to you. So these things being said, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Ian to call us to worship. Oh, yeah. 
church, let's recite together how the Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. Amen. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast When the tempter would prevail He will hold me fast I could never keep my hope Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold He must hold me fast
Good morning, Providence. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just come into your presence to worship today, acknowledging that you are the maker of all things, the creator of this universe, full of power and majesty, full of creativity and life, full of overwhelming love. Father, we acknowledge our brokenness. We look around this world, the news, in our own homes, in our own hearts, and we acknowledge our identity problem. We acknowledge that so many times we trade our, our creator for these created things. We put our hope and our trust in the wrong things. We look for fulfillment in all the wrong places. And Lord, I just pray that you'd forgive this church, forgive this country, forgive this community, forgive me for the times when I'm not rooted and abiding in you. Father, turn our hearts right now back to you, back to your word, back to what we know is true, back to the songs that we're singing, the words that we're saying, and the word, the word that gives life and light to all. Father, we lift this nation's leaders to you at this time of unprecedented uh, tension and politicizing of everything and confusion. Lord, may our peace and our joy and our hope in Christ shine so bright. Lord, help us to love well. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, give us wisdom that, that we would just be attractive, that, that we would make the gospel shine through and, and make Jesus famous. Lord, we do just pray that you'd give our nation's leaders and our, our local leaders wisdom. I do pray that you'd turn them to you. Lord, none of this is a surprise to you. Nothing, nothing has happened that hasn't been ordained by you. You allow the sin and the cons natural consequences of our actions to shape all things together for your glory and, and for our good. And Lord, um, we do just lift to you um, those who are serving in the mission field, those, those, those missionaries that we support, those ministries that we support globally um, and locally here, Lord. Help them to continue the work that you've called them to at this, at this difficult time. Father, may uh, the, the anxiety of the day just lead people uh, to be more open to your word, to your truth. And please bless those that we support in dangerous places and unsafe places. Um, we, we pray that you protect them, protect their health, protect their ministries, Lord, protect their families. Father, thank you for the good work um, that's happening here at Providence for our new members, for our, our, our growing body. Thank you for the health and the life that you've given here. I pray that all that we do this week, this day, and in this moment, our thoughts and our actions would glorify you. Lord, give, I just pray that you bless Austin as he comes and teaches your word to us. May our hearts be attentive. May we be active listeners, actively engaged and contending with what you have for us today. Lord, thank you. Thank you for gathering us. 
In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now would you turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Luke. I'll be reading from the ESV, the first 13 verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Thank you, Denny and team. You know, it doesn't take very long as a thinking adult to realize that there are tremendous inner struggles in life that we know that we can have very nice things and we can have very nice positions and show ourselves to be all put together but realize there are deep inner struggles inside us. That you know what we might say is winning the thought life is so incredibly important because I think we know that the way that we think about things determines the way that we behave. And for some of us, I actually would go so far as to say for all of us that these inner thoughts, this war within, can be so grave that it's as if we're in a life of enslavement. And this we've given a label to, haven't we? That this, the inner struggle in life between the right thing to do, whether to please ourselves or to look to higher principles, that we call that, we give that the label temptation. The temptation arises inside of us when we weigh certain things about our own immediate benefits against maybe something that we know is better and right and true. And that's common across every thinking human being. And so we ask ourselves, as we look once again at this Greco-Roman biography of Jesus, right, a first-century account of the impression that Jesus made on his first followers, a lot of us say, well, you know, Jesus is God. He really doesn't understand what it's like to be human, to struggle with these kinds of things and to have the potential to be enslaved. Does he understand our predicament? And one of the things Luke wants us to see today is that Jesus does understand. If you remember what we've been looking at the last few weeks is that this person of Jesus is unique in all history because he's the God-man. I like that label, right? That he's fully God, but also fully human. He took on the second person of the Trinity, took on a full human nature. So in 322, God the Father says, you're my beloved son. You're the one from all eternity that's to reconcile my people to myself. You're my son. He's God's son. But you remember last week, those 76 names. The genealogy, Luke says, yes, he's the son of God, but he's also fully human. 
that he came from a human lineage, right? As he came to confine himself to human nature, a full human nature. And today we see that Jesus, just as we are tempted and have these inner struggles, so he too was tempted in these ways and can understand that Jesus knows what we're up against. He understands the pressures of the inner struggles and the thought life and temptations. And this, all of this really is going to prefigure next week when he really starts his public ministry, as we'll see. This, in a way, is a test case. Now, a few things before we go a bit further about the nature of temptation. Firstly, temptation really is about short-term benefits against long-term well-being. If you think about it, I think that's a very good definition. You know, something that's there for your taking right now that's going to promise some returns in the short term, but we know that it's going to have long-term and probably and usually always uh, harsh um, consequences down the line. I think of those, uh, I know perhaps you've seen the experiments where they'll plop down a, a child of, say, five or six, and they'll put one marshmallow in front of him and say, now, if you can hold off eating that marshmallow for five minutes, we'll give you three marshmallows in 30 minutes. And how many of those young minds, they take that first marshmallow? You say, that's a great example of what we're talking about. So many of we laugh at the marsh, but so many of us say, I'm willing to take that short-term game even at the expense of my long-term well-being. That's why temptation uh, grips each one of us. And so we have also a culture of immediacy. Say, never has there been a culture in the history of the world that's prized speed like ours, that we want good things right now that benefit us. If you notice so much technology is really about that, delivering something right now on our terms, and it's getting harder and harder to pass this test of what we could call delayed gratification. I think one of the most important things for all of us to learn is the benefits of delayed gratification, that I'm not going to take what I want now for something that's going to hurt me down the road. Moreover, I'd say that temptations usually don't involve something that's so obviously terrible. You know, in other words, it's not kind of, well, we have this very good thing against this obviously bad thing. Say, if that was the case, it wouldn't really be a temptation. What we have often in temptation is two good things, but one of them's done in such a way that it can be harmful. That it's not, again, an obviously bad choice, but something that's good, that's taken out of context and abused. That whenever we're tempted, I think we'd say there's not a great deal of innovation there. That it's the same things as we're going to look at today. The same kind of things that tempted a human being 2,000 years ago are exactly what tempt the human heart today. That there's not a whole lot of, lot of uh, innovation, but rather it's about subtleties and about the nooks and crannies, as Calvin would say, in our own heart that fall prey to this trick time and time again. And so I asked the question, I think if I could just sum it up a line, it says, am I willing to sacrifice what I want most for what I want now? Am I going to sacrifice what I want most in life, and we'll define that later, for what I want now? And so often in our fallen nature, in this inner struggle in the mind, right, this thought life, this life of enslavement, so often we give in to immediate pleasure at great peril in the long run. You know, I remember reading Genesis, and you think it's so funny how Esau sold his birthright to a cup of, for a cup of stew. You say, who in the world would sell their inheritance for a cup of stew? And yet all the time, we see people making very, very sad choices, don't we? Seeing many a man lose his family for one evening. <laughs> say, just like Esau to sacrifice what he wants most for something he wanted now. Does Jesus understand 
How do we get victory in this area? What does this passage have to do? Why is it so strategic in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel? It's, you say, well, if Jesus didn't pass this, say the whole thing, the whole subsequent narrative would have been shot. This is so incredibly important. So in Luke chapter 4, Jesus being tempted... Why? Because he's fully human and he wants to identify us and he's going to prevail where all of us fail. And so a few things to unpack here and bold heading number one there is that we're introduced to a character in, I should say, a person in verse two, and that is the devil. You know, I know where your mind's going now. So here you are, you know, listening in Avon or Westlake or wherever you are, Bay Village. And you say, well, you know, it's one thing to talk about Jesus. You know, he was a good ethical teacher and I'm okay with God. And, you know, churches are important for instructing values. But please, please don't talk about the devil. Uh, that's just way too embarrassing. Nobody believes the devil anymore. You say, well, scripture's clear, isn't it? You've studied the Bible any period of time that the devil is a person a person who's active in the world, who really holds power over a dominion of darkness, who works his ways and is in rebellion against God. And there are some things here that we must tease out in order to go forward. And the first is, is that the devil is a, a created being by God. That God, evidently, with little bit that we gather from Scripture, so we don't want to make a huge point about this, but we know there are other created orders, that there are angelic orders, and it would seem from the little bits we piece together that there's a hierarchy of rebellious angels, angels that God made good, right? Everything God created was good, but a subset of angels rebelled against God, and the chief of those angels is who we know in Scripture as Satan or the adversary or the devil, an extremely powerful archangel, a created being of God who rebelled against God. And so I bring this up because a lot of people say, well, how do I grapple with the devil? Well, I don't understand. And some will fall into one of two positions. Either you say, well, the devil's, you know, kind of, I, I'm not really sure what to make, kind of forget about him. But then the other mistake is to kind of see God and the devil as two co-equal powers, as many other world religions have. You say, if you take something like Zoroastrianism in Persia, you say there's the dark powers and the light powers and they're competing. It's a highly dualistic religion. Is that what we have here? We have God and the devil and they're co-equal and they're duking it out and we don't really know who's going to win the battle at the end. You say, that's not biblical either. You say the devil is dependent upon God. He's a creature of God who only moves at God's permission and within God's sovereign plan. So if you read something like Job 1, right, that Satan has to have God's permission to move, that he's a created being of God. He's ultimately going to be judged by God. He's not a co-equal God, but a creature of God. There aren't co-equal powers. And so I think what we see, best summed up by, on matters like this, I go to the great theologians of the past. So you have the quote from Calvin in the Institutes, right? Here's what he says. He says, Satan and all the impious are subject to the power and government of God so that he directs their malice to whatever end he pleases and uses their crimes for the execution of his judgments. You see what Calvin's saying here is that Satan is subservient to God. He's a creature of God, but God in his sovereignty of goodness is using the crimes that Satan wants to do in his own will in order to carry out God's plan. Now, here's a perfect example in Luke chapter 4. You notice when Denny read verse 1, two times God's Holy Spirit is mentioned right? Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. In other words, this isn't 
Satan hijacking Jesus. It's not Satan working outside the plan of God. I think what we're supposed to gather from this twice-mentioned spirit is that God is in full control. He's using the crimes of Satan to fulfill his purposes. And one day, yes, Satan and all those who rebel against God in their own will, doing exactly what they want to do, will be judged. So God is in full control, sends Jesus out, a great example of the crimes of God's enemy being used in his overarching plan, in the execution of his judgments. Now, I have no problem, personally, believing in a malevolent force, or I should say a malevolent person. You know, you think about the natural world, and you say, well, yes, sharks eat seals, and the great game animals of the plains, they get a wildebeest to stay fed, and you have the so-called circle of life in the natural world. We don't describe evil to those categories. Somebody quipped once, they said, isn't it interesting that only humans can be inhumane? Say, alternatively, when we pivot to homo sapiens, when we pivot to human beings, the gratuitous evil is enough to move any person, no matter how hard the heart. Recently, I've read a number of book reviews on the Soviet gulag in the 20th century, Solzhenitsyn and others like that, the horrors of what they did to those political prisoners up in Siberia mutilating them while they're still alive and doing experiments, freezing people to death by the millions. I remember being with my father in Poland. We made our way to Auschwitz. You say, it would sure seem there's a great mover of evil out there. Likewise, been to Dachau and those other prison camps. You say, horrific the way human beings treat each other. We say, well, I don't know. That's a little bit, you know, that was a while ago. Say, well, what about now? Say, estimates by international labor organizations would say 40 million people, 40 million people today are in slavery. Say, yes, slavery's been on our minds a lot lately. It's not something that's just gone away. Say, human beings treat each other terribly. And here we say, well, I don't know if there's actually an agent of evil out there. Say, if we even look at the last 100 years, do you know the last 100 years, more people are tortured and executed by other humans than in the previous 19 centuries combined? Say, we, enlightened 21st century people, have not made much progress in these areas. But rather, it would seem we can be so incredibly cruel. And one explanation of this is that there is an agent of evil, a great rebel out there who has turned against God, who has tried to pit human beings against him and against one another. And for me, I have absolutely no problem understanding that, given the gratuitous evil among human beings even in recent times. Now, additionally, not just those kinds of things, but notice how Satan works. <laughs> right from the very beginning of the Bible, we see how he works, but here, remember Luke 3.22. I've gone to this a few times, but again, it's God saying, what does God tell Jesus? You're my son. You're my beloved son. And that quotation of Psalm 2 saying, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the chosen instrument. You notice Satan's first words now in the temptation. Do you see it there in verse 3? What's he say? He says to Jesus, if you're the son of God. The very first thing Satan does is he casts a little doubt on what God says. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, you remember what he does? Did God really say... Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden at all? You see, he just takes something of God, twists the word, casts a little doubt. 
That's the way he's always operated. You say it's not particularly innovative. At least we see here from the first human beings up to the time in Jesus, his methods have been absolutely the same, and I think the same today. Cast a little doubt on what God says. God doesn't really, he's not real, he's not serious. Just casting a bit of doubt on what God really said. And then secondly, you'll notice also that Satan quotes scripture. You know, a lot of people that you'll meet, you'll say they'll toss in a little Bible and make uh, you think that they're a holy person, right? And you say, well, did you know Satan knows the Bible well? And notice what he does here, right? You'll see he actually cites Psalm 91, 11 to 12. But what he's doing is he's taking Psalm 91, 11, and 12, which is about God caring for his people in times of trial, and he misapplies that and tries to get Jesus to test God. You see how subtle that is? To take the word of God out of context and misapply it in order to muddle up the matter. You say these are very subtle but very powerful ways of acting. Now here I think we get more to the point. So you look around your community and you say, well, I don't know if the devil is at work. You know, you're expecting to see um, a, a red person with horns um, walking around. You say, well, I, we can't possibly believe that. Or goblins or other people have the view, maybe the devil's the one who gives me a flat tire or has me catch a cold. Is, is that what he does? Say, that's not the idea we get here. You say, what is Satan really trying to do here? He's trying to get Jesus to doubt the goodness and reality of God. Say, that's the main ambition of the devil, right? He wants to create distance between God and his creation. He wants us to doubt him. Did God really say, well, I don't know, his word can be toyed around with. That's what the devil, and say on those grounds, if that's the definition of what the devil does, you say he's been more and more successful in America over the years. He goes from being nowhere or somebody who just does little bad things to you to somebody who actually has been marvelously successful in the Western world. Casting doubt on the word of God, trying to create distance between God's creation, just say, you know, don't trust him. He goes for the mind, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't he? All these, you say, he goes for Jesus' mind, right? That inner struggle, just lean a little bit, doubt God, twist the truth. That's the arena in which he's operating, not just doing little bad things in our lives, but having us cast doubt on God's goodness. In that case, the devil is well, and we must trust God. So the devil, a created being of God, however, used within God's sovereign plan to execute his judgments, who is not someone to be taken lightly and forgotten about, but someone who's active and tries us to get to doubt, to doubt God. Now, what about these three temptations? And as I said before, that while some of these are very specific to Jesus, right, that we're not particularly tempted by this, if we are the son of God, we all know that we're not, not the son of God as Jesus was. So some elements of these are specific to Jesus, but notice the areas that Satan goes for, again, are universal. Unbelief and worldliness and doubt. Common then and common now. So temptation number one, verses three and four, that Jesus has been fasting, he's hungry, that he's been out there 40 days, a symbolic number to fulfill where Israel has failed and to echo Moses and Elijah. So he's been out there, he's hungry, and what happens here is that Satan is going to question Jesus on whether or not God actually provides. It's a question of God's provision. See, he says, Jesus, do you 
is God the Father really going to take care of you? I mean, look at you, and you're in such bad shape. You've been out here all these days. You're starving. You look terrible. Is he really going to take care of you? Just do it yourself. If you're the son of God, take care of yourself. Do it now. Just indulge. It'll feel good. And you see, so while it's a challenge to God's provision, what's it playing on here? It's playing on appetites. Playing on appetites. You know, I think living in an affluent society that the satisfaction of appetites becomes all the more enticing. That if there's something that governs our minds today, it's that if you desire it, go for it. You see, you realize this is quite strange in the history of human beings, this kind of methodology that the modern American mind, the modern American mind says, if I have an impulse, if I have an appetite and a desire, to do it myself and fulfill it. And say, why is this so different than what we read in the Bible or what a lot of great minds in the past have thought? And, and it lies here. You say, for most of Western thinking, that human beings were, they had an essential nature. That is, that being a human was something quite special, that we had a nature, and within that nature, there was a purpose in what we were supposed to do with our lives. And in the Enlightenment, what happened to that is said, well, actually, that's a bit confining to think being a human actually means something, that there's an end goal to being a human. Actually, what we're going to do is you can become anything you want. You, if you desire it, just go for it. Maybe a way of analogy or another word picture here will be helpful. So the classic view would say something like this. An acorn can become only an oak tree. Then an acorn, when properly nourished, right, that it has the essential properties, it's the nature of an acorn, and when it's nourished, it can become an oak tree. It can't become anything else. It can become an unhealthy oak tree or a healthy oak tree, but it can't become something else. That's what it is. It's in its essential nature. So again, classic view said, here's what a human being is. A human being who is healthy and makes good choices will ultimately, in the Christian view, say, have union and maturity with God. That's the end goal. But you see what we've done? We said, well, no, I don't like that. That actually, I'd much prefer to say, I want to do whatever I want to do on my terms and not be confined to an end goal. And Jesus here reminds us, I think, that real livelihood and real satisfaction is not in indulging our desires whenever we please and doubting God's provision, but rather to trust in God to realize that he has a plan, right? In this case, God's son, a big plan for Jesus, right? It could have all been lost here, right? He'd given in to Satan, but God had a plan. There was a trajectory for Jesus, a healthy one, where he would deliver the world. And so it is with us. Here you hear the voice of Satan. Go on, take care of yourself. You're hungry? Go for it. You have that impulse? Go for it. If that desire is there, you deserve that. Say, so you know what we must say is that God provides that we're to rest in him, that the ultimate fulfillment of our lives is one at peace and obedience to him. And I think it's obvious here, right? There are echoes back to Israel and really all the way back to Adam, the first human being. You remember now Adam is in a delightful paradise. He's well-fed. He could eat anything. And Adam still, like all of us, we fail, have so much abundance, and yet we still fail and doubt God's provision and indulge ourselves. But Jesus, starving, resists the devil, resists his appetite, and rather goes to the word of God, Deuteronomy 8.3, and says, you know what it says there? That man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. 
And don't we need to be reminded of that, that my life doesn't lie in the things that I have and the satisfaction of the flesh and the acting on my impulses and going after my desires and doing what I want on my terms, but to remember that God's word is what I need, that he's in control, that he wants to conform us to his likeness, that we have that essential nature of being his children, and that's the best way. So we're tempted to indulge our appetites and to thwart our God-given design. Now, how about temptation number two, verses five and eight? So if the first one plays on the appetites, gets us doubting God's provision. You say, temptation number two is about power and authority. That here the devil takes Jesus up, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and what's he say? This is probably a lie, or definitely a lie. To you I will give you all this authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will be yours. Very simple. It's a temptation for Jesus to avoid the cross. See, Jesus knows, again, say he's going to win the great victory. He is the king, right? He's the one who's the judge of the whole world. But here Satan tempts, he says, let's just bypass that hard plan that God the Father has. All you have to do is worship me as a God. And then you'll have real authority. Do you want to take the easy way? Do you want to obey God or do you want to take the easy way? Will Jesus falsely worship? Will he worship Satan as a false god? And you kind of gloss over that, but you say, isn't it true that all of us, a friend of mine gave me this wonderful phrase. He says, we all have approbation lust, that we love approval that we love power and recognition and authority. And how many of us have sold out for far less for just a little bit of authority? You know, I think of that wonderful line in Mark's gospel, it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Some who like old films will know the line from a man for all seasons when Sir Thomas More says, well, Richard, it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, yet for whales. And so many of us could say that. It profits us nothing to gain the whole world and forfeit our souls, yet for a promotion. It profits a man nothing to forfeit his soul or to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, but yet, yet for one night on the town. You see, we're so incredibly foolish, so incredibly vulnerable to this temptation. I think captured wonderfully in the great world literature is Shakespeare, a wonderful theme of power and its corruption. And how about Faust, you know, Goethe's Faust, right? What's he do? He sells his soul to the devil for a bit more power and pleasure. You see, friends, this temptation to power is so incredibly enticing. You say, well, I just would rather, you know, kind of go the, 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 sh- the short way around just to get that, that bit of recognition. Now, I know it's not the right thing to do. I know I'm sacrificing what I want most for what I want now, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. Well, not Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that. He shows us here that he's not going to play the game that well, that way. And what he says, again, citing Deuteronomy 6.13, right? that we are not to worship anyone but God alone, and may we never worship be those who worship power and those in positions and authority because that is short-lived, and if we play that and sacrifice ourselves to that game, that we will have a lifetime of great misery. Now, temptation number three from verses 9 to 12, and notice this one, I think, is the location is important. Devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and then they go up on the temple, You see that in verse 9. They're on the temple. Why is that? Because that's the dwelling place of God. 
Say, well, if, you know, we think God is everywhere, but if God's really present, he's going to be in the temple. And notice what he tells Jesus. This is where he misquotes Psalm 91:11, right? He takes it out of context, and he tries to get Jesus to demand something of God on his terms. You say, this week as I wrestled the third, the third temptation, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is quite profound. How do we capture it? I think the question is this. Would Jesus create a test to determine God's goodness? Would he manufacture some kind of artificial um, way of seeing if God really means what he says? I think a good analogy is talking to Pastor Caleb this week. We were talking about earthly, son, or earthly fathers and earthly sons. It would be like this. You say, I tell my son, son, I love you. And then him to say, well, dad, if you really mean that, you'll take me for an ice cream right now. You see the problem with something like that? You say, it's taking the good-natured heart of a loving father and immediately putting that to the test by something kind of shallow and on the son's terms, Right? And that's exactly what Satan tries. If you're the son of God, again, repeating that, then here, put him, you know, he says he's going to do this. Why don't you test that now? And Jesus knows better. He's not going to be presumptuous on this. So he's not going to say that being God's son exempts him from certain hardships or that he needs to be proved, but rather he's going to continue to trust God. I think this lesson teaches us, right, that trust in God doesn't mean acting, acting recklessly. It doesn't mean testing that all the time, but rather to take God as his word to, to test him. So we're tempted to abuse our status as Christians, to put God at the test, to say, well, God, if you really, if you really love me, you're not going to make me th go through this difficult thing, are you? You see, what I've done then is I've made God come down and behave on my terms. And that's not what I want to do. I want to trust him as a child because he's my loving father may we not abuse our status and again jesus comes back quoting deuteronomy so what's clear in all three instances is that jesus resists temptation by accurately not only citing but applying god's word to overcome now here we get to the point some key takeaways today some very practical takeaways is that we want to see that jesus prevailed where every other person fails Jesus prevails where every other person fails. No doubt if you've read the Bible, you've noticed the echoes from this uh, back to Exodus. You say Israel failed in these areas, that they tested God, that they rebelled against, they, they you know, whined against God, they griped. You say Jesus, unlike other people, unlike every other person, resists temptation and emerges stronger. And I ask you today, say some watching this you've been a christian a long time and you know that this battle inside the mind this fight within this inner struggle you said you've given in way, way too many times i hope we come back and say well a there's forgiveness in jesus for when we failed in temptations and given in to them but also to say he's the way out so to speak so you don't take on the devil just in the flesh you say that we're going to lose every single time but rather we have the lord jesus the one who prevailed that it's only in him that we can beat any kind of temptation whatever that would be he's the one in whom we can trust so you read passages like hebrews 2:18 or hebrews 4:15 it makes it very clear that none of us is going to be exempt from temptation but rather it's jesus who was tempted in every way like us and as we cling to him he will lead us through you know others 
you know, maybe you're not a Christian or you're not sure about it and you're a little bit weirded out that I've talked about the devil today, but I, I maybe you've recognized the great inner struggle in your life and you feel enslaved and you've kind of adopted the modern worldview of just going and going after your desires, right? What else would I do? And you say, it's going terribly wrong. I'm hurting other people and I don't want to do this anymore. I'm terribly enslaved because I've constantly sacrificed what I want most for what I want now. And if you're in that position, I pray you see in Jesus that there is a way out. There's a way out of, of that kind of enslavement that, that he offers you a, a great freedom as we surrender to him. Say, Lord, I have, I have done a great mess of my, I'm a sinner. I've not thought about you or God, and I've done my best to ignore you. And you can come to Jesus for forgiveness and a victory in these areas in your life. Jesus prevailed where every other person fails. Temptation is inevitable and we're told then, if that's the case, I think today, is to start preparing ourselves for trial now. That it's not when we get in a difficult spot in life, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to do. So when we find ourselves in the midst of a really tempting situation, if we've not thought about what we will or will not do before that point, it's really hard to resist. There's a quote I like a lot that I've said uh, from Iris Murdoch. It says, at the crucial moments of choice, most of the choosing's already done. What did she mean by that? She said, when you're going through life and you, you are faced with real temptations and you've not you know, committed yourself to what you will and will not do or have a strong faith, you say, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna give in. That's way too enticing. But rather, if we start now, say, Lord, I, I, my faith in you is where my strength comes from. And in you, these are the things that I will and will not do, and I need you to be my strength in those times. That's what we're taught to do, right? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. May our faith be strong now, not wait for the moment of temptation, but cultivate a robust faith in Jesus, the one who conquers our temptation, the one who lets us get through. And lastly, just a point of reminder, may we not be those who give up what we want most, which is a life in relationship with God a life of peace and rest in our maker, a life where we're on the appropriate trajectory of what it means to be a human in his image. Let's not give that up for what we want now, which is often gratification and power. And so friends, again, the temptations will come our way. May we reflect on this passage that Jesus doesn't give in to appetites and doubt God's provision. He doesn't give in to the lust of power, approbation, lust, but rather rests in God's plan. And most of all, he doesn't put the Lord to the test but trust him at every move and know that Satan is lurking to try us to get to doubt God's word and twist it. But may we tuck into Jesus and be those again who take the long view whose lives can be used for great impact. So I'll pray and then we'll sing and I pray that we're able to think further about this. Father, thank you for preserving as we pray every week this section of Holy Writ. Um, thank you that all of us can identify with temptation. It escapes none of us that we have a fight within, an inner struggle, that we can feel enslaved, and when we give in to those thoughts, that it leads to destructive behaviors. We know that, and thank you that Jesus is not oblivious to that, but rather when he took on the human nature, persevered, not just against him, but against the Satan in this intense environment, and teaches us to trust you. Lord, may we always be aware that there's an adversary. Yes, under your sovereign care but the adversary trying to get us to doubt you and i pray that we would persevere that jesus not only gives us the example but he gives us the power to do so
So Lord, use us. May we stay strong in Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.
is our prayer and our song that we would lift high the name of Jesus in our week to come. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Go now in peace and make much of Jesus. God bless you.